you probably already know. And if you need um, scripture, it'll be up here on the screen. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can track with the message there. There are printed messages at both exits, and um, the audio messages and printed messages are also on the church website. Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles, and now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When you read words like we just read, Jesus' words here, where he he promises that from the innermost being of those who have believed in him uh, will flow rivers, that's a plural, not a singular, one river, multiple rivers of living water, Uh, you have to stop and ask, I sure did this week, to what extent... Is that true of me? To what extent is that true of me? Since I trusted in Christ as my Savior, uh, has it been my experience that these ever-flowing, gushing, abundant rivers of living water are just welling up inside of me and flowing out to others around me? Now, Ah, those questions do two things for me. They convict me, and they give me hope. They convict me um, because if you're honest, as I am here, you can't say, you know, those words just nail it. Man, that's exactly my experience since I became a Christian. Just these gushing, never-stopping, overflowing rivers of of abundant living water flowing out of me. Yep, that's, that's me, all right. Uh, I don't think any of us here can honestly say that. Honesty forces me to say, well, you know, sometimes it's a trickle. And uh, occasionally it's kind of like Rio de Flag. It just sort of dries up, you know, in the, in the drought months, and there's not much there. And once in a while, praise God, once in a while there's been a creek you know, flowing, but rivers, plural, ever-flowing, gushing up. No, 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 I'm sorry, that's a stretch to describe my Christian life like that. And so I have to say those words convict me of the barrenness of my own experience with the Lord Jesus. At the same time, those words give me hope. Um... If my life doesn't match Jesus' description here or your life, the good news is it can. Because what we have here is a promise from our Savior, a promise to every one of us, to all who will come and drink, that out of your innermost being will flow these 
rivers of, of living water. And I, I always appreciate Calvin because he is not a hypocrite. And he admits here when he writes, he says, uh, this is an ideal that none of us are going to meet 100% perfectly in this life because we all fight indwelling sin and, and we all um, uh, just have differing measures of faith. And so we're never going to be that way. It's kind of like the command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are you ever going to be able to do that perfectly? No, but you can make progress. You, you can make definite progress toward that. And I do believe that it is possible for all of us to really experience steady, growing, abundant joy in Jesus Christ. Joy that wells up within us. Joy that flows out of us uh, to others And we have the promise that he who began the good work in us will perfect it until the day of of Christ Jesus in Philippians 1.6. But, as I'm going to point out in this message, it is not an automatic process. You might think so reading verse 37 and 38 alone. But um, there is something that we must do to help this progress. We have to press on toward the goal. So let's look at Jesus's promise to all here. He blesses all who believe in him, he says, with rivers of living water. And those rivers are the rivers of his spirit so that we will bless others. So there's a promise. Uh, There is, I'm going to argue, an implicit requirement. And then there's the result. So let's look first at the promise, and that is that Jesus Christ blesses all who believe in him with rivers of the living water of his spirit. And I want to point out five things about this wonderful promise that we have here from our Lord. First of all, we need to focus on the person of the promise, and that is Jesus' claim here shows him to be God in human flesh. I think to appreciate Jesus' claim and his words, we need to understand the setting again. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the third of the three great feasts in the Jewish calendar. There was Passover in the spring. Fifty days later was Pentecost, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And then in the fall is Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And uh, it was a harvest feast of thanksgiving to God where the Israelites would come to Jerusalem. They would erect, um, they didn't have tents and they didn't have campers. So they would put up these uh, booths of palm branches and other willow branches and things. And they would dwell in them, kind of camping out for a week. So I'm sure it was fun for the kids and crazy for the parents like camping is if you've camped with kids. But um, It was a time to remember that God cared for Israel in the wilderness. He took care of them for 40 years with manna, food from heaven. He provided water gushing out of a rock in that barren uh, wilderness area. And the feast also looked forward to the final harvest, the ingathering of the nations during uh, Messiah's kingdom. Now, during Jesus' time... There was also a 
ceremony. It's not stipulated in the Old Testament, but it had been in place for hundreds of years by Jesus' time where every day for seven days a priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. Pool of Siloam, that means scent, as we'll see in John 9. And he would draw water in a golden pitcher. And he would march in procession back to the altar in the temple. And he would pour out that water at the base of one side of the altar, while from the other side another priest would pour out a pitcher of wine. And it was a picture of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as Isaiah the prophet mentioned. In Isaiah 12:3, it says, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And then again in Isaiah 44, 3, he says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So this feast took this uh, procession and this uh, ceremony took place for seven days in this feast. And Jesus here, John wants us to see that Jesus here, is the embodiment, the fulfillment of everything symbolized in the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember in John 1.14, the the literal translation of John 1.14 would be, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Most versions say dwelled among us, lived among us. But the, the Greek word is the word for tabernacled. He, he became God's dwelling place there among us. Um, Paul also tells us Jesus is the rock that uh, provided the water in the wilderness. And as we saw in John 6, Jesus is the manna. He is the bread of life that God provides for our spiritual hunger that sustained Israel in the wilderness. And so... Now on the last day of this feast, Jesus claims to be the source of living water for all who will come to him and drink. So he is the fulfillment of all that that feast symbolized. Now, as I say, the water ceremony took place for seven days, and then there was an eighth day of the feast. And scholars are divided on whether uh, John 7 here refers to the seventh day, so that Jesus stood and proclaimed this right after they poured out the last pitcher of water, or whether, more likely, it's the eighth day, and there is no pitcher of water, but Jesus stands and says, all that you have observed for the last seven days, I'm it. You know, I am he. I am the one who fulfills this. And so he stands and he cries out in a loud voice, the word there, Uh, cried out, just means yelled. He didn't have a microphone. So he stands up in the temple, people all around for this final great day of the feast, and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Not go to the altar, not go to the ceremony. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Now, think about it. That is just an astonishing claim. You know, if I stood up and said that, you would all kind of say, it's time for him to retire. I think he's kind of over the hill, both, you know, mentally and then some. 
I mean, what mere human can say, if you will come to me and drink of me, I'm going to provide you a constant, abundant, overflowing river of living water that will satisfy your thirst. That is a claim to deity. Jesus is here letting us know that he is God tabernacling among us. And so we, we have to see the person of this promise above all, that it is none other than God who took up residence in human flesh, who dwells now among us in the person of Jesus. Then notice the breadth of the promise. Jesus' offer is open to all. Anyone, if anyone, that's about as broad as you can get, isn't it? Doesn't exclude anyone. It included Jesus' enemies who were there trying to plot how they could seize him and kill him. If they would come to him, he would give them rivers of living water from their innermost being. Uh, It extended later to a man who described himself as the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul. And if it applies to the chief of sinners... It applies to all us lesser sinners as well. And that's the wonderful news of this promise. It is open to all. It is spoken here in the temple to religious Jews. It applied to them. And it especially applies to religious people. Going up for this ceremony, this feast, and uh, partaking in it faithfully every year for all of their lives could not save them. The religious Jews had to come to Jesus and drink to receive eternal life. And so everyone needs to come to Jesus and drink. And because the Spirit inspired John to write these words down for us, it means that the offer extends to every single one of us. Whether you grew up in a Christian home and have been in church all of your life, or whether you're from just the most complete pagan background imaginable, whether you're a convicted felon, It doesn't matter. Anyone is as broad as it can be. The offer is open to anyone and everyone, Jesus says, come to me and drink. And to underscore that truth, the Bible virtually ends by repeating this promise. This is not the last verse of the Bible, but it's it's certainly within sight. At the end of Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, and verse 17 The spirit and the bride say, come and um, let the one who hears say, come and let the one, notice the parallel here, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the promise that God gives to everyone who will come. It's wide open. Notice the condition of the promise. And that is, you you must be thirsty. You have to be thirsty. If anyone is thirsty, and that means you have to be thirsty for God. And the Bible often uses that kind of language. We just saw it in Revelation uh, 22. You know, let the one who is thirsty come. It's in Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and it's free. You have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money 
and without cost. Or the psalmist cries out in Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Or David in Psalm 63, verse 1, says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you, yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And then again, as we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21.6, Jesus says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life, and then he adds again, without cost. Without cost. Now, at first glance, that sounds like a very easy condition. Just be thirsty for God and come and drink. But the problem is, because of sin, people don't recognize what they're thirsty for. And so they try and fill the thirst with all kinds of illegitimate things. Uh, John Piper, the pastor, his dad was an evangelist, and he said to John, the difficult thing is not getting people saved. He said the difficult thing is getting people lost. And what he meant was they don't see their true condition before God, that they are lost, they are under judgment, they have to come to him to receive the salvation that he offers. And so they try and, and quench their thirst with success, with money, with fame, with sexual pleasure, with all sorts of illegitimate things. And the root of all sin is to try and, and fill our thirst with things other than God, to thirst for things other than God and His glory. J.C. Ryle made this observation. He said, The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Till we know that we are lost, we are not in the way to be saved. The very first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. Now, once you recognize your thirst for God, here's the good news, as we've seen. It's a free gift. We saw repeatedly, without cost, without cost. You don't have to work all your life to earn it. Uh, you don't have to clean up your life first so that you qualify for it. It's a free gift without cost. And that points to the simplicity of the promise. And that is to receive this living water. It's simple. Come to Jesus and drink. That's what he says. Come to Jesus and drink. Isn't that great? He didn't say, you know, if you're thirsty, folks, get a bigger shovel and keep digging. You'll hit water down there eventually. I know it's hard work, but just keep, keep. No, he doesn't say that. And thankfully, he doesn't say, you know, if you're thirsty, join the church and get baptized and take communion and do penance and give money to the church and clean up your life and attend church every Sunday for the rest of your life and maybe we'll, we'll consider your case. He doesn't say that. He just simply says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And to me implies you're entering into a personal relationship with the living Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
So it's not about rules and rituals and going through all of that stuff. That, there is a place for certain rituals, of course, like communion. But it's not about that. It's about entering into a personal, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by coming to him and drink, drinking. Think about that. What could be more simple than drinking? You're outside on a hot summer day. You're working in the yard, and your wife comes to the door and says, I've got a pitcher of ice-cold lemonade. Come and drink. You know, it doesn't take a college education or a lot of effort or willpower to go, hmm, yeah, I think I will do that. You, you come and you drink. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Pretty simple. And to come to Jesus is to come to the one who loved you enough to leave the glory of heaven and take on human flesh and the form of a slave, as Paul says, and to become obedient to death, even that horrible death, on the cross where he bore our sins, if we believe in him. And you say, well, what does drinking mean? Well, it means what I just said, believing in him. Because, see in the very next verse, the parallel, he who believes in me, and then John even repeats it in the explanatory verse 39, those who believed in him. And so, to receive the living water that Jesus offers... It means you come to him and you drink or you believe in him. Now, when you drink something, you, you take it into yourself, believing that it will quench your thirst. It becomes a part of you. You appropriate it. Um, if you come, you're thirsty. You're hiking out in the desert somewhere, and you come to a clear-flowing stream, It's not enough to say, there's a stream. I believe that thing would make me uh, quench my thirst. Yep, I really do. And so you keep on hiking. No, you stop and you drink. And it's not enough to just intellectually say, well, I believe Jesus would give that to me. Yep, I've believed that all my life. No, you come and you drink. And by the way, drink is in the present tense. And that, I think, means there's a process. We keep on drinking, although we come to him and drink. We believe in him for salvation, and we go on believing in Jesus to appropriate all that he is for us. So we've seen the person of the promise is none other than Jesus, who is God in human flesh. Uh, We saw the breadth of the promise. It's for anyone and everyone. We saw the condition of the promise. You have to be thirsty Uh, The simplicity of the promise is all you have to do is come to Jesus and drink. And then finally, the supplier of the promise, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in each believer, supplies us with every spiritual need. Verse 39 explains, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, if you notice in your text, at least in my version, given is in italics, which means the the, uh, translators have supplied it. The literal Greek was the Spirit was not yet. That does not mean, of course, the Spirit did not exist because John knew his Bible. And in Genesis 1-2, the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit of God was moving over the waters in creation. 
And there are references all through the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. Uh, So John did not mean that. Rather, what he means is the Spirit was not yet manifested on the earth as he would be uh, after the day of Pentecost when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on his church and Jesus was not yet glorified, he says, which means he had not yet been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. That's when, he said, he would pour out the gift of the Spirit. In the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed, he said to the eleven in John 14, 16, and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the word paraclete that you've probably heard, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world could not or cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you, notice, and will be in you after the day of Pentecost. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead and just before he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, Gathering them, the the disciples, together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And on the day of Pentecost, as you know, they were all baptized with the Spirit who came on them with power, They spoke in tongues, and they became powerful witnesses for Christ. Now, some say, well, we all need that same experience now. Subsequent to salvation, we need this this dramatic experience with the Holy Spirit where we speak in tongues and and, uh, experience a new level of the Christian life. I believe that is to misunderstand the fact that Pentecost was a historic event that happened once and for all in the history of the church. At that moment, they and all subsequent Christians received the Holy Spirit at the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. Um, Here's why I hold that. As you read through the New Testament, if anyone would seem to be lacking the Holy Spirit and needing to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I think the Corinthian church would qualify at the top of the list. I mean, they were bickering, they were fighting, they were involved, one of their members, in immorality. The rest of them were tolerating it. They were suing one another in court. I mean, it was a mess. And yet, here's what Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit... We all, not some of you, but we all were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And in case we missed it, he cinches it up by saying, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit, of one spirit. And so I contend that all believers in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and it is not required that we have some kind of dramatic experience later. Um, Paul, Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 9. 
However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he clarifies. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Uh, Paul teaches that the spirit is the seal of our redemption in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4. Uh, that the Spirit gives spiritual gifts to all believers. Uh, He teaches that the Spirit reveals to us the riches that God has prepared for us, 1 Corinthians 2. And those riches include, as he says in Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, or as 2 Peter 1 says, uh, that uh, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness And the Spirit reveals those things to believers. But then maybe you're wondering, well, wait a minute. If the Spirit is living in me and doing all these things, then why am I not experiencing these rivers of living water? Why is my experience more like I get a trickle of living water? And I believe there we need to, I think it's implicit here, but other scriptures are more clear that we need to learn to walk in the, in the Holy Spirit in order to experience His fullness. In other words, the Spirit does not fill us, control us automatically. In Galatians 5.16, Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then, Uh, To clarify, he goes on and he lists a number of desires of the flesh. And uh, he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. And then he repeats in chapter 5, verse 25 of Galatians, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, the first clause there refers to salvation. If the Spirit has given you new life, and he has implicit, then walk by the Spirit. And I think that that is implicit in our text in that word drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's not a one-shot deal. It's a present imperative, which means drink now and keep on drinking of Jesus. So it's parallel to what it means to walk by the Spirit. Now think about that analogy. Uh, Did any of you walk from the womb? No. We all have to learn to walk. Usually about, you know, 12 months, you're beginning to get the hang of it, but you plop down quite a bit, fall a lot. The longer you keep at it, though, you know, it sort of becomes part of your normal thing. And if you're physically able, you probably don't think much about walking unless you're on ice or some slippery surface. Then you're kind of going, "Mm." but normally you just get up and go out and do it. It becomes part of you. It's not very spectacular. Paul could have said, Leap by the Spirit. Fly by the Spirit. You know, that would have been pretty spectacular, wouldn't it? Walking is just kind of an ordinary, everyday thing. And if you do it and you aim at something and keep on doing it, eventually you'll get where you're going. Maybe not as fast as jogging or fast as uh, leaping or running or flying would be, but it it gets you there. And uh, to walk by the Spirit means this. Every day... In every situation, you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. You say, Lord God, would you control me, my thoughts, my words, my actions today in this moment? 
and you go on doing that step by step, day by day, and it becomes your mode of operation. Now, sometimes you fall. Sometimes the flesh kind of rears its ugly head, and you lash out in anger, or you have a lustful thought, or you're selfish, or greedy, or whatever it may be. What do you do? Well, what do you do when you fall? Hopefully, you get up, you know, and you say, man, i got to be careful there. Uh, that was a bad spot. And you keep walking. And so when you fall spiritually, you get up and you say, oh, God, I just sinned. And would you cleanse me? Would you fill me? Control my life, Lord. I don't want to fall there again. And you keep walking in dependence on the Lord day by day. And as you do it, gradually, it's implicit in the word fruit. There is no instant fruit. They haven't invented that yet. It grows slowly. But gradually, Galatians 5, and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control begin to manifest themselves in the life of a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled believer. But we need to look at one more thing. Why does the Lord here... Uh, speak of giving us the Holy Spirit, who is portrayed here as these rivers of living water flowing from our innermost being. And I think the reason is Jesus Christ blesses all who believe in him with these rivers of living water for two reasons. One, so that we will be satisfied in him. And secondly, so that we'll become a source of blessing to others. Let's look at those. First of all, Christ blesses us with these rivers of living water so that we will be satisfied in him. When he talks about your innermost being, some versions have the heart, the the literal Greek is from his belly. Now, Paul uses the word belly in Philippians 3.19 to refer to uh, cravings whose God is their belly. He's talking about unbelievers. But your belly is always craving something, isn't it? Food, you know? Oh, man, I'm hungry. Uh, and so the, the idea here is, rather than craving earthly things, that, that our innermost being is going to be abundantly satisfied through the indwelling spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. And that's pictured by this living water. You know, when you live in a dry climate, ours is pretty dry. The Holy Land is very dry, especially parts of it. Water is a a wonderful thing, especially rivers of living, flowing, fresh, clean water. Oh, man, that is so refreshing. Uh, I don't like the desert per se, but I do like to hike in the desert where there's a stream. You know, that just kind of is an anomaly. Wow, streams in the desert. And the Old Testament is just full of references to water as satisfying uh, our thirst spiritually. So you wonder here when Jesus, or uh, yeah, when Jesus says, verse 38, as the scripture said, what scripture is he referring to? I think D.A. Carson is on target when he suggests that Jesus is referring here primarily to Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. The setting is there is a revival going on 
in Jerusalem among the remnant that has come back from Babylon. And Ezra is expounding the law of God to the people. And at first, they weep. They are convicted of their sin and they weep. And Ezra says, no, 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 don't weep. He says, today is a day of rejoicing. And then there's that great verse in Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that a wonderful verse? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then you know the next thing that happens? In the law, they rediscover the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, this feast. And they all say, hey, let's celebrate it. And so they set up their booths and and they celebrate the feast with great joy, it says. Great joy going on. And then in chapter 9, Nehemiah prays a prayer of confession And he recounts Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their time in the wilderness and how God provided manna and how God provided water from the rock. And he says that in verse 15 of Nehemiah 9. And then he repeats this in Nehemiah 9.20. He says, you gave them your good spirit to instruct them. There's the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. Water for their thirst. And all of that, you see, is a picture of how God sustained. First, he saved his people out of Egypt. And then he sustained them and he satisfied them, even though they were in a hard and barren place. And that's the picture that Jesus here, I believe, is bringing to bear on these people who knew the Old Testament far better than we do they would have immediately thought of Nehemiah 8 and 9 and said, joy and the feast of booze and water and and manna and all of that in Jesus? Wow, it's all in him. And so I think we should follow the example of that dear old St. George Mueller in reading his biography. Mueller had a habit. He said, we should begin Every day, begin every day by seeking to be truly at rest and happy in God. Truly at rest and happy in God by reading God's word and meditating on his promises and just recognizing the riches that we have in him. So I believe that the first thing Jesus wants us to know here is that uh, he satisfies us abundantly when we come to him and drink. But that's not the end of it. He doesn't do it so we can just be full and happy and go our way. He does it so that we will flow out on others. And that's the second thing. Christ blesses us with these abundant rivers of living water so that we'll be a source of blessing to others. And they too will be filled and they'll bless others and the chain goes on. Uh, You know, the world is a barren, thirsty desert. They don't often know it, as I said. They're looking to fill their thirst with this, that, and the other thing other than God. But you and I are to be the source of the rivers of living water that this thirsty world really needs. And so as people see Christ in us, the fruit of the Spirit, as I mentioned, in us, and they... They want what we have. They just say, you know, there's something different about you. 
You just seem to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and all these things. What is it? And then we tell them how they can come to Jesus and drink. And so lost people desperately need, even if they seem satisfied, they, they really need what we have, the, the eternal life, the rivers of living water that only Jesus can give them. But it also applies not only to people out in the world, but to fellow believers. You know, there are some of you this morning going through a dry spell, spiritually. It's hard. We've all been there. And if you're not, guess what? You're the stream, and they need what you have to offer. And as you're filled with the Spirit... And you're satisfied in Christ and you overflow to others around you. You know, Paul mentions how he and Titus were refreshed by other believers. That's Paul. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't think Paul ever needed to be refreshed, but he mentions that. He says, oh man, our hearts have been refreshed through you. And you can be the source of refreshment to others. Now, it ought to begin in your home. It ought to begin in your home. Our homes should be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents. Those qualities should just be oozing out of our homes all the time. And then they should be flowing between us and the church. Did you know? Let me tell you a secret. There are difficult people in this church. Not not me, of course. And not any of you. But they do exist in this church. And they're going to grate on you like sandpaper. Do you know why the fruit of the Spirit includes patience? You don't need patience if you get along marvelously with somebody. You need patience when they kind of grate on you. Don't you? And you see, it's to happen in the church. And if you just come to church saying, oh, Lord, give me something today. I need you. I need... If it's all about you, you're going to miss what God is doing. You should walk in the door of the church and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit so much that I'm just going to flow over on these difficult people and on the good people too. You know, on everybody that may be thirsty, that may be dry, that may, may be going through a rough spot. Lord... Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your peace. Give me kindness toward all. And as that flows, the body will build itself up in love. And you know what you'll discover? You'll go home more filled than if you come saying, Lord, fill me. Because there is a joy that God gives when he uses you to minister to someone else. You've experienced that, haven't you? We hear a lot about burnout. And the key to avoiding burnout is be filled with all that Jesus is for you so much that it just flows out to others. And that's my definition of ministry. You're filled to overflowing with Jesus. And, and, you know, it's when you aren't filled with Jesus that the well runs dry and you got to kind of prime the pump and you grind the gears down there. But when you're filled with the joy of Jesus and all of his salvation, what it is to you, ministry flows. 
ministry flows. If you come to church to get something for yourself, you're going to be a lot like the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is dead. Nothing lives in it. And it's salty, much more than the ocean. Because all the rivers flow into it. It's a low spot. And nothing can flow out. And it gets stagnant. And that's how you'll be if you just say, oh, here I am, Lord, fill me, fill me. And you're not thinking, flow from me, Lord, flow from me to others. So what should you do here in response to Jesus' promise? Well, first of all, I think take an honest assessment of your spiritual condition. I, I had to do that this week reading this. I just had to say, oh, my, is it a river? It's not rivers in me. Lord, is it a river or is it just a trickle or where, where am I at? So if you've never experienced it at all, then you need to come to Jesus and drink. Believe in him as Savior and Lord. That's where you begin. And then keep drinking. Keep drinking. And uh, if it's a trickle, then you've got to make it a priority every day. Get up early enough to just at least take a few minutes and open your Bible and say, Lord, God, fill me. Show me the riches I have in Christ. I need to know more of him. And, and, and get filled with the Lord every morning from the word. And then walk in the spirit throughout the day. And, and say, Lord, God, I want to be your suit of clothes. Just live your life through me in the way I think, the way I talk to others, the way I, my attitudes are. And my behavior, make it be selfless, Lord. And uh, get your focus off yourself and unto those that you can bless, those you can flow on. And, and pray that your normal experience would be that from within, from your innermost being, would flow these rivers of living water that would bring praise and glory to our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful words that Jesus gave us. And Lord, I am the first to confess, they do not always describe my life. In fact, probably rarely. And so I, I pray, Father, that in your mercy, you would fill me and fill my brothers and sisters up with all that Jesus is for us. And that that abundance, Lord, would flow out of us to help those who are thirsty those who are lost without Christ, our brothers and sisters who are dry, and, and that your body here, Lord, would be this rivers and rivers of living water flowing from us to this dry and thirsty community. And we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper as we conclude and then sing a few worship songs to uh, focus again on the Lord. If you're a visitor with us and you know Christ, uh, we invite you to partake with us. Our custom is hold the elements until all are served and then I'll lead us together. Just use the time to go before the Lord. Thank him for his abundant